All right, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6. The title is Consider Christ and Your Calling. Uh, So far, we've seen that Jesus is the express image of God, chapter 1. He's a creator and sustainer of all things, that he is greater than the angels, and his incarnation affords us immeasurable blessings. This was all found in chapter 2. In this next section, into chapter 3, we're going to see a comparison between Jesus and Moses, and that Jesus is superior to Moses, the, the kind of the, the pinnacle of the Jewish faith. The man, anyways, Moses, was that one that they esteemed more highly highly than any other for very good reason, which we will look at. But Jesus is greater than him. And then we also, in our last verse here today, we're going to see another strong exhortation to continue in the faith. Remember, this is a group of uh, Hebrew believers. There could have been some Gentiles mixed in there, too. But for the most part, they they were Hebrew believers that were contemplating leaving their faith in Christ and going back to the laws and to the sacrifices that were being offered up. And so this letter is to encourage them not to do that. We begin there in verse 1. We'll read a couple of verses. It says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. So we'll stop right there. We're going to kind of slowly pick this apart, and then we're going to pick up the speed toward, uh, towards the middle section of these verses. But we are to consider who we are in Christ. And the first thing that he says is that we're holy, or what? We are set apart. And we should never forget that we have been marked and appointed by God to be a special, peculiar people that are for his purposes and for his plans. We've talked about this last week, but you are an individual that God knows and loves and created. If you are a believer, you have been recreated and given a second birth, and he has a gift for you, and things that you should walk in. We're to be set apart. We're not to just be busying our life with a bunch of okay things. Okay things are great. It's better than sinful things. But we're we're to be those that are approving of the things that Paul would tell the Philippians that are excellent. That that gets really narrow, doesn't it? There's, There's all kinds of good things that we can do. They're not sinful. But the exhortation to you as a holy uh, person in the kingdom of God is that you would approve of the excellent. And man, that just, that just gets really narrow when you begin to think about what is excellent. And I think we can all feel the importance of that. Has anybody found themselves to be busy lately? Anybody at all? Yeah. Is anybody like, where is the button to slow this thing down? How do we? And, and listen, you just got to hear from the Lord and you've got to choose the excellent things. There's a lot of great things, there's a lot of good things, but what's excellent? And that's what we need to do because we are to be set apart. But let me ask you this question. When you hear the exhortation or the comment that you are holy, how does that hit your ears? How does that touch your spirit this morning? Is there a sense where your heart and your mind is saying, absolutely, I am holy, I am set apart for the Lord, and I don't want to be going any other direction, I don't want to be doing anything else other than what God has for me. That is who I am, that is what I want to do. Or, when you hear the call and the reminder that you are to be holy, does it make you kind of think, man, all those commandments, all the fun stuff is off the table now, well, now what am I going to do? 
and it begins to look like a deterrent to you living a pleasurable life. You know, if you are in the place that say, I want holiness, then clearly God is at work in your life. Because when you came to faith, he wrote upon your heart how you should live and the things that you should desire. That is the work of the Spirit of God. Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, he said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And what are those called, those little verses there? They're called the what? Beatitudes. They're what you be, they're not what you do. It's who you are. You are one that hungers and thirsts for righteousness because you're part of the kingdom of God, because your heart's been written upon. But now if your heart's like, I don't want to do that stuff. I mean, I just like the, you know, I like to be around religion, but I really, I mean, I don't want to walk this out. I don't want to live this out. I would ask you, what is it about Jesus that makes you not want to be like him? Because we're told to be holy as he is holy. So what is it in the character or the nature, the person of Jesus that you don't like and would say, "Mm mm-mm, you're not going to make me look like that. I'm not going to do that because this is what the Lord wants us to be, is to be holy. We are holy. We are set apart. But the next thing that we read here is not only are we set apart, we also are part of a family. We're holy brethren, sisters included, right? Holy brothers. Now, we read in chapter 2 that Jesus calls us his family, his brothers, his sisters, So we are in this brotherhood together with Jesus being the the most senior brother, if you will, being that God-man. But we share this humanity, and he says, you are my brothers. What a high and holy association it is to be connected with Jesus in that manner. But let me tell you, the same is true for those that are sitting around you. I would imagine most of the people that you're sitting around are individuals that have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and they would say that they are followers of Christ. I realize maybe not everybody's at that place, but I pray you will be before you go. We're praying for that. But you're sitting around a group of people, and that association is a high and holy calling. We should esteem this relationship, this association that we have with each other. So, yes, with Jesus, but with one another. And so look around. These are the people that you're going to spend eternity with. This is your band of brothers. This is Team Jesus that you are a part of. Now, we're not the only team. There's a lot of other teams that are gathered throughout the world today and in different locations. And we're, we're connected with them as well. But God in his sovereignty has seen fit that you are part of this right now. That you're part of this. That you're striving together in your faith to follow him and to serve him and to reach this world. And we've been connected with each other. There may be even a group of people you'd rather be connected with. But look, here you are. You're, you're in this midst. So this is your, your holy brotherhood that you're a part of. You know, when you listen to athletes, like I'm thinking about, I just heard this, um, you know, uh, on an uh, NFL player who's retired. And, and he was talking about, you know, the thing that I really miss the most and it doesn't matter what sport you hear this so often. He says, the thing that I really miss the most about football is not scoring touchdowns, not tackling, not practices. It's the locker room. 
Oh, I just missed that, 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 you know, you know, and they use different terms to describe it, but that, that brotherhood, that family, he goes, I miss it. It's so intense. It's so real. Well, guess what? You're in the locker room of Jesus right now. And we should have that awareness of that we are together. We're the team. We're, we're the ones that have been tapped by the Lord. It says, all right, love each other and go get this world. And here we are. We've been yoked together to do that work. And that should mean something to us. That should be something that's important. It's a valued relationship. And we have this mandate that's going to come out later on in this chapter is that we are to help each other along in this journey, this pilgrimage to our, the heavenly city, that we are to consider each other. So as you look around, think about this. David De Silva writes, the author continues, author of Hebrews, continues to direct their interest and ambitions beyond earthly well-being. Drawing them in now as partners in this enterprise of assisting one another to attain that destiny that God has prepared for them all. The addressees are invited to consider themselves as partners in a joint venture who will be given responsibility to assist one another along the way, to keep one another on track, as it were, so as to make sure that none falls short of the goal of this calling. That's who we are. And we've been knit together in this way. There is no other association that is more significant. The, our relationship with the Lord. But there's no other association that is more significant than that. Now, the, the blessing is many times this association comes with the other really meaningful and significant relationships on this earth. But I, I, I believe that you can, you can make a good case for this. Remember, when Jesus was challenged about his loyalties to his family. Remember when they were thinking he's kind of nuts and family came to pick up Jesus because he's kind of acting a little strange and he thinks he's a Messiah. And so the people are like, hey, your, your family's here to collect you. And he's like, my family? Here's my family. Who's my family? Those that believe in me. Those that are following me, that's my family. And he said it in a more powerful way when he says, if you love your family more than you love me, you are not worthy to be my disciple. So this unity, this brotherhood that we share together, it is highly significant. So says the Lord. And so we need to do everything we can to build one another up in this holy heavenly calling. Find where you fit and pour into other people. Find ways to encourage those around you. It is not okay for you to sit on the sidelines and watch other people do all the work or struggle in their faith without putting your hand to the plow to help them because you're part of a brotherhood. You're part of an army. You're part of a team. And so... And really, I mean, the other most powerful metaphor that we're given of our, our, our gathering together is you're part of a body. And that body is actually named for us. It's the body of what? Christ. You are members. I'm a member. And so this should mean something to us. We also, not only are we holy, not only are we part of a brotherhood, part of a family, but we're partakers of the heavenly calling. We're, we're going somewhere. And where we're going is pretty, pretty amazing. It's a place 
that is not made with hands. It is eternal, and God himself is calling you to be a part of living forever in heaven. And keeping our minds on this is going to help us through this present life. The more you think on heaven, the more you think upon that calling that you have to be connected with the Lord and to live for eternity in heaven, the better your walk with Jesus will be. You probably have heard some say, you know, that they're so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. That's not a Bible verse, actually, at all. And we're exhorted to be heavenly minded. So I would say that if the person saying this means a person is pseudo spiritual and therefore they're no earthly good, I would agree with you. But that's not what the Bible is calling us to do. To be mindful of our heavenly calling is, to, is going to produce the most earthly, um, gracious, benefiting people on this planet. It's because you love the Lord, you love people, you love the lost. And it helps us to, to, to not become entangled with the affairs of this world. We're just passing through. Knowing I've got a heavenly calling on my life, I've got a place to go. I don't have time to slow down and smell the, you know, you know, this, the roses of this earth. I've got to press on to what the Lord has called me to do. 2 Timothy 2.4, no one engaged in warfare, so that other metaphor of being a soldier is in play, no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. So, I mean, when I say, you know, it's just smelling the roses of this life, I mean, that's what he's saying, the affairs of this life. And it's like, well, you know, there's nothing wrong with you. You're right, there's nothing wrong with enjoying this life. As a matter of fact, we know and we can find in Scripture those that are wealthy were, are, have been made wealthy and that they should enjoy those things that they have. So the Lord's not afraid of us enjoying this present world that we live in. But when this present world causes us to become entangled and that we care more about this present world than we do about the place we're going to, that's when we have lost sight of our heavenly calling. So... Three quick things that he says uh, to them to help them remember who they are. And then he moves in verse 1, middle of the way through. He says, now consider the apostle and high priest of our confession. So consider who you are. Now let's consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. Consider Jesus. The word consider here means to think about carefully, to contemplate Right? You're not just allowing a thought of Jesus to come in. Kind of you start to turn it over a little bit and you're like, get distracted by something and move on. Uh, yeah, my wife can uh, vouch for this that I can quickly become distracted at the last thing she asked me to do. I realize I'm the only husband on planet Earth that does that, but I do it very, very well. And so she'll like, uh, did you, whatever, maybe, I mean, s simple thing, thing I would want to do. I'm like, oh no, I got distracted. It's a replay. I, you know, I was watching the game or I was, I was doing this or I had that thought in my mind or I got up to do it and on my way to do it, I got distracted. Yeah, my, I'm not really considering that thing that she has asked me to do. But we need to consider Jesus with a, like an intensity. We need to have him in our mind and that we're contemplating him. Consider the apostle, he says. Who's the apostle? 
Well, that's Jesus. And he, it's the apostle being sent one. So you have the apostles, then, you know, uh, James and Peter and, and Paul and so forth. And we see them and they were sent by the Lord. But Jesus was sent, right, by the Father. So he's called an apostle. He was sent by, the, by his Father to this earth. And, and so if you want to have a fun study, um, look up, just kind of you can do a search for send or sent. And just the Gospel of John. Do a word search for the word send and or sent. And watch how many times Jesus refers to himself in this way. And it's just going to take you some time because there's more references than you can believe. But he is that apostle and he is the faithful one, right? He is a, a high priest and he is faithful, an apostle and he's a faithful one. Because he's sent, we want to hear what he has to say. He's sent from God. That gives him some clout. That gives him some, some position to be able to speak about life and death, to speak about God, to speak about how to live our lives because he has come from our creator. But he's not just an apostle, and you should consider that before you make your decisions. What does the apostle, what does the sent one have to say? But he's also the high priest. So this draws upon that familiar picture that the, this audience, these Hebrews, would have been very familiar with the priesthood um, that, took, that was functioning in the temple. And the Aaronic priesthood, they served as a mediator between Israel and God. The priests would go before God on their behalf to the sacrifices. They would come back from offering those sacrifices, and they would bless them. They were a mediator. They were a go-between. But Jesus is the go-between now, right? Jesus is that mediator. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and, man, and men, the man Christ Jesus. There's only one. There's not many ways. There's not many people that can go to God for you. There's one man, and his name is Jesus. You have some mediating that needs to be done on your behalf. You cannot go and do it on your own. You need to come to Jesus, and he will be that faithful high priest to you and mediate on your behalf. So consider him who's atoning your sins. Consider the one who's your advocate in heaven. Consider him. Ponder him. When we make poor decisions in this life, it's because we're not pondering Jesus. That's, that's what happens. You never make a bad decision when you are thinking upon the Lord and what he wants and what he has done for you. You will make good decisions. He goes on to say, this one that we should consider, this one who is the apostle and the high priest, he's the apostle and the high priest of our confession. He's the one that you've confessed so he's, he's bringing it to their attention. You guys have pledged your allegiance to the apostle and to the high priest. You said you wanted to follow him. You claimed the name of Jesus. You've made this confession. Uh, the, the Greek word is homologia, and it simply means a statement of allegiance. A statement of allegiance. You pledged allegiance to Jesus as, your, as the apostle, as your high priest, when you started following him. Maybe you didn't understand all the ins and outs of what that would mean, but at this point in time, you do. 
You're going to follow him. He's going to be the preeminent one in your life. And our connection with Jesus, it needs to be a confession of my own will. We are not connected and associated with Jesus because of geography or because of our family name. I'm American. Okay. What does that mean? It means you have more opportunity to hear the gospel. You have easier time to get to church than others in the world. Okay, I agree with you. But that doesn't make you a Christian. That doesn't mean you've made a confession. You've got to make that confession yourself. Mama can't do it for you. Your dad can't do it for you. You must make that confession. So neither geography or family name. I've done a lot of weddings, love to do weddings. Never once in any wedding... When it gets to that part where people say, I do, okay, two, two English majors decided they wanted to do, I will. I'm like, okay, all right. I, I believe you. I mean, I don't know. I, okay, you can do, I will. But everybody else has always done the I do. But same idea. It's like, I'm all in. I've never heard somebody else answer, I do, on their behalf. Could you imagine if you were at a, a, a wedding and it comes to the part where the pastor says, and do you take so-and-so to be your lawfully wedded husband, wife? And, and, and the guy was like, mom? <laughs> yeah, you do. What she said. That would be really strange, don't you think? I mean, I, I, w- I would stop it. I honestly would stop it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't complete that one. <laughs> I wouldn't. I'm, I'm not going to sign that paper, um, you know? <laughs> Like, we need to work some things out. We can do it tomorrow, but we're not doing it today. Um, But that would be strange. It needs to be your confession. You, You need to say that yourself. Have you said it yourself? Have you pledged your allegiance to Jesus? If not, you need to. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 32, 33, he says, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. It's no small deal to say, I don't think I want to follow Jesus. It is not neutral. To say, I don't want to follow Jesus is to secure the fact that Jesus will say, well, I'm not letting you in. I'm not going to acknowledge you. By the way, we make a, and here I've done it through this whole message, but just let me add another kind of counterbalance point. It's really important that you believe in Jesus, but you want to know what's more important than you believing in Jesus? Is Jesus believing in you. And that the confession that you made was legitimate and real. Many will come to me in the last day and say, hey, didn't we cast out demons and do all these miracles? He goes, sorry, I don't know your name. Who are you? Depart from me. So it's important that Jesus knows. Now, in Romans 10, 9, and 10, it tells us what this confession is, that you confess with your mouth the Lord, Master, Jesus, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. He died on the cross, and he is risen from the dead, and you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. You confessing, pledging your allegiance to Jesus, that he is Lord, that he is risen from the dead for your sins, is to receive the salvation that he is offering as a high priest. And you've got to make that. Geography doesn't do it for you, and your family name doesn't do it. We keep on reading into verse 2. 
of this consider uh, of this Jesus we're considering that he is also faithful. So consider him who was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses also was faithful in all his house. So now we have Moses introduced here. Why Moses? Because there's no one that gets a higher recommendation in the Old Testament than Moses. Numbers chapter 12, verses 1 through 7 is probably in view, although it's not directly quoted here. This is when Miriam and Aaron uh, got upset that Moses married an Ethiopian woman after uh, Zipporah, his wife, had died. And they said, hey, God can speak through anybody. It doesn't have to be just brother Moses. So the Lord takes them aside. And as he takes them aside and rebukes them, he's, the Lord, the Lord himself says four things about Moses. He's the humblest man on the earth. He is the most informed prophet ever. That he was entrusted, was an entrusted servant over the house of God. And that he was faithful. That the writer of Hebrews would take Moses as one to compare to is appropriate because God has spoken so highly of him and all of the household of Israel also thought highly of him. So let's choose the number one person on team Israel and let's compare him to Jesus. And the answer is, well, Jesus was faithful. Jesus was faithful to the one who had appointed him. In Revelation 1.5, it calls Jesus the faithful witness. In 1 John 2.6, we're told to live and walk like Jesus lived and walked. If Jesus was faithful, then that's how you do it. If you will, 1 John 2.6 is the original what would Jesus do verse. Thought, he who says he abides in him ought himself to also walk just as he walked. What did Jesus do? What did Jesus say? That's exactly what I need to do. So consider Jesus, that he's faithful. They needed to be faithful. Moses was faithful. They needed to be faithful. Then in verses 3 and 4, we read that Jesus has more glory than this Moses. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. So in the next step of comparison between Moses and Jesus, it's to show that he holds a more significant position. He holds, Jesus holds a more significant position. And he uses this imagery of, of that Moses is part of the house, but who built the house? Well, Jesus built the house. And he, as a builder, is more significant than Moses. I think we can understand that in everyday terms. I mean, you don't go and honor a house. You honor the person who made the house. And Jesus is the master builder that is deserving to have this glory. So pretty simple point for them to pick up on. Don't, don't esteem that which is built above the builder. And so Moses was part of the, the house, but Jesus is the one who built the house. And so this is an important point. Now, verse 5, and in the first line of verse 6, we see that Jesus is not only superior as a builder, but he also is superior as a son. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken 
afterward, but Christ as a son over his own house. Moses is a faithful servant, but Jesus is a faithful son. A faithful servant will never have more honor than a faithful son. This is something that's, that's, you know, nobody would have disagreed with. A servant is not going to have a more prominent place than one's own offspring. Ralph Harris writes, Christ's superior, superiority to Moses is stated simply, he's not a servant, he's a son. He is not in the house, he is over it. It is not someone else's house, it is his own house, the one he himself created. So he's just showing, why would you go back to this? Why would you go back to this when you have one that is superior in every way? And then he says in verse 6, but Christ is a son over his own house whose house we are if we hold fast. And he's going to go into a conditional statement there. But consider this other truth. He's superior as a son. He's superior over Moses. But consider that we are Christ's house. We are the dwelling place of the Lord. There's some amazing verses in the New Testament that drive this point home. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, he says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? God dwells in you, but not just in you individually. He dwells within us. 1 Peter 2, 4, and 5, coming to him as a living stone. So thinking of stones as part of the, the, the construction material. He's we come to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. God dwells within you, but he also dwells within the house. Each of us are blocks in the, in the, the house of the Lord, and the Lord dwells within us. So, why do we go to church? Because Jesus is there. Why do you always go to church? Because Jesus is there. What do you mean Jesus? The Spirit of the Lord inhabits the praises of his people. He says in Revelation that he walks in the midst of his lampstand. Yeah, but your church has got problems. Have you read about the seven churches in the book of Revelation? Let me just put it. A church out of control is not, has no past, it needs to get it right. But it's, neither is it an excuse to not go to church because you can't find one. Jesus has found seven that he could go to, that he writes about, and they are not model citizens, but he still went to church and still spoke to them. Jesus goes to church, we should be a part of it. So consider this, that you're part of his house. Not to the exclusion of the, the household of Israel. I, I would just say in one house, we have come together, believing faithful Israel and believing uh, uh, those that are believers in Jesus today are brought together into one house. And the Lord wants to manifest himself. 2 Corinthians 6.16 says that he is going to dwell among us and walk among us. And so this is the significant piece of church. You know, the world in the last couple of years, they couldn't, they didn't get it. As, what's wrong with you Christians where you've got to meet? You know why? Because Jesus 
has commanded it, and Jesus is there. Well, I can, I can do it on my own. You're right. You can do it on your own, and I hope you're doing it on your own. But that's not the only way that we meet with the Lord. There's something unique that happens when the family of God gathers together and, and as living stones, and the Lord is in their midst. Now we close here in this last phrase of chapter 6. And it's a conditional clause that we have. He says, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. So we're going to remain his house. We're going to be his people, right? We're going to have him over us. But we must do this. If we hold fast the confession and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Important that we hold this exhortation. Believers were experiencing hardship for their faith, and so they're exhorted to continue to press on, hold firm. It comes as a conditional clause, a conditional promise. And there are lots of if uh, uh, promises that are given in Scripture and warnings depending on which side of the condition you end up landing in. But I want to explain it this way. This is the way I think it is helpful to explain why it's if and not for certain. Remember the parable of the sower and the soil? Jesus gave this parable, and he talked about how there was a farmer, and he grabbed some seed, and he went out, and he cast the seed. One soil that it landed upon was good fertile soil, and as... It rained and, you know, went through its natural process. It bore a great crop of fruit. But then there's three other types of soils that were not positive. One of them was just like the, a hard path soil. So you can just imagine there's these uh, paths that have been trodden down. They're compacted, um, you know, over time. And as the farmer's out there, he's throwing his seed, and some will end up landing on that path. The birds come down immediately still. And Jesus said, this is Satan. He comes, and he's there always trying to, uh, to snatch the message of the gospel away from people. Then he talked about how some landed among the thorns. It, it, there's soil there, so it begins to grow, but because the thorns are there, it ends up choking out the life of that plant. He says, this is like the seed, the word of God that landed upon a heart, but because of the cares of this world, it gets choked out. There's so many other things that are important to it rather than to uh, following the Lord. And he says, and then the other type of soil, does anybody know? Which one am I missing? The shallow soil, the rocky soil. The seed goes, lands in a little bit of shallow, uh, soil, but immediately germinates and sprouts up. It looks so promising, but then the wind and the heat comes out. The trials and the hardships of life scorches it and it withers away and it dies. And so the author here is saying, I exhort you to be good soil. And if you are good soil, if you hold fast, then you're going to always be in this place. But you know, there's a lot of people that start out in their walk with the Lord, and it seems like they have so many things going for them. It looks so promising. And, but immediately, you know, they're gone. It's like, well, what happened? I mean, it, man, it seemed like there was tears and everything. It's like, yeah, it sprouted up, but it went away. And so the author is concerned that some of them may be like that that they will be those that are not going to hold fast to the end. 
The word hold fast here means to adhere firmly to traditions, convictions, or beliefs. I think of it as this, get a death grip on your confession. Just hold on to it. <coughs> death grip. Rebecca had a death grip one day when we were at this little zoo in Australia. We lived in Australia. You remember that, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. So there's a little crocodile. And um, they handed it to um, her to hold. And she ended up strangling this little thing. <laughs> and um, they're like, oh, give, give me that. And they immediately snatched back this little crocodile because she got nervous and she had a death grip on it. It was turning green in different ways besides its natural color. And um, I'm like, what are you going to do to that thing? It's like his eyes were coming, you know. And it's just like she had a death grip. She didn't want that thing to turn. I mean, it had like teeth. She didn't want it to turn. You know, we need to get a death grip on the Lord. Now, I, I talked about how at the beginning that, you know, we have this confession what does that confession look like? How tight is it right now? Has there been things in society and in culture? Have you heard a teaching or some rant? Have you watched somebody who used to follow Jesus Christ on some social media saying they're no longer following Jesus and here's why you shouldn't follow either? Has that loosened your grip on Jesus? Why has that loosened your grip on him? What has he done? Because really, honestly, this is what you're doing. It's like, well, you know, they got a really good point. I don't know if I'm going to be as serious about it. This is what, this is what you are saying. Hey, Jesus, I heard somebody talking about you. And you know what? I'm not quite as committed to you as I used to be. Is that all right with you? That is what you are saying. Put it in terms like that. Well, I'm not going to, I'm just not going to be a part of the church anymore. There's too many things going on. Hey, Jesus, I, you know what? I want to get away from your people that I'm bound with, and I don't want to be where you are. I'm getting away from that. That's what you're saying. Hey, the commandments, I know that there's all these commandments, and I'll be faithful to most things, but you know this one area, I'm just going to be disobedient. You know what you're saying? It's like, Jesus, as I consider your words and what you've called me to and how you lived your life, I find that I really don't like it all that much. There's things about being holy and being like you that I'm just not, I'm not willing to do. Because, you know, I've got needs and I've got desires. And I think this thing will make me more happy than being faithful to you. So hold firm. Get it. Hold on to it. Don't let anybody move you off the mark. And I love what he goes on to say here at the end of verse 6. He says, if we hold fast the confidence, the boasting. You know, why in the world would we let those who deny Christ and blaspheme Christ to keep us from boldly announcing over and over again that we are followers of Jesus Christ? And the, the, this is the word confidence here means a state of boldness and confidence, courage. And the author goes on to say, especially in the presence of persons of high rank. Well, that kind of adds an interesting dynamic to it, doesn't it? High rank, this person that I consider a really good friend, a family member that has a high place in my life, my boss or the government that has a high place. They got really something. You know what? I don't want to. I mean, the bum on the street, I'll, I'll talk about Jesus all day and I'll be really bold. But now this person that I esteem, 
I'm going to be a little quieter. No, the, the call to this confidence, this courageous boldness is especially to be in place among those of high rank. And this is the problem that they were feeling. They were being pushed back. He says, no, 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 don't get pushed back. Be bold about your connection with Jesus. And we need to be bold. And the last thing that he says is not only hold fast to our confession, but also our rejoicing. Hey, we have an amazing salvation. We have a high priest. We are going to heaven. We're going to be with him forever. Why would we allow them to quiet our joy over our salvation? We have been given joy unspeakable, Peter says. And this should be something that continues to radiate from our life over and over. So they were to hold fast their, their confidence, their boasting, their position in Christ, and they were to hold fast the hope that they had. So as we wrap it up, we need to remember Jesus. We need to hold fast and continue. We need, just as Jesus gave the parable of, to a, of a rich, foolish farmer, Remember, said, I've got all kinds of stuff. Soul take need. I don't have to worry about getting ready. And the Lord says, you fool, your soul's required of you tonight. It's a foolish thing to not be ready to meet Jesus. But you want to know what's even a more foolish thing to do? As having begun in your faith to quit it. And then to stand before him and to realize I was on the right path. I was on the right, I was going down the right path. What moved me off? The screaming and the yelling and the anger of the day? Listen, when you stand before Jesus, that's gonna feel really foolish that you allowed that to move you off the path. You remain steadfast. And don't let the hour and the noise that we're living in to move you away. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth that you have preached to us. You are a faithful apostle. You delivered the message that you sent, that you were sent to deliver. Here we sit because of it. You're a faithful high priest. You have atoned for our sins. And Lord, we gladly pledge our allegiance to you this morning. We want to get a death grip on you afresh, who you are and what you've called us to, what we're a part of, and Lord, forgive us if there be any lack of confidence, boldness, courage in the, in the face of those that seem to be important. Lord, you are the one that is important. So help us. I want to just give you a chance to, to pray. If you've never confessed, pledged your allegiance to Jesus, then you need to do that because he's not going to get you in a headlock and drag you into heaven. He doesn't do that. You've got to confess the Lord with your own mouth. Not your mama's mouth. Not your granddaddy's mouth. Your mouth. You, as a matter of your will, have to say, I do, to following Jesus. If you haven't done it, you need to do it today. And if you have done it, but you can feel that, man, I've, you know, a couple of fingers have gotten loose around my commitment to follow the Lord. And I feel it can't even put it in terms, but I know it. I know what's going on in my heart, my life. Hey, in this moment, in this second, not in a minute from now, in this second, confess the Lord is your Savior completely and totally that no one else and no thing else will ever take you away and ask him to give you the strength to walk that out.